Welcome to Vernacular Verbose, the Jethro Tull fan podcast. Today we're continuing on with our deep dive of the Tull discography, going into album number three, Benefit, released in 1970. This is an album that is pretty interesting and unique, I think, in the discography. It's one that I would probably describe as a dark horse. I feel like that's kind of a good way of describing it. What do you feel, Gigine? Well, uh, I feel that Benefit is Jethro Tull's one only truly psychedelic album. Hmm. I've never heard that before. Yeah, this is kind of an opinion that I formulated at some point. And a word of caution, the word psychedelic is going to come up <laughs> several times when I talk about the tracks, because I don't only want to express this opinion. I want to ground it. I want to ground it in fact and show what I think are the elements that make the music psychedelic. Hmm. Because in general, the album is very jammy, very loose, there are lots of sections based on improvisation rather than being rigorously pre-composed. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, the album kind of feels to me like a step sideways rather than a direct link between Stand Up and Aqualung. Mm. Like you can trace the development of Jethro Tull's style through, through the albums, but Benefit kind of wiggles, <laughs> wiggles sideways into a slightly different territory to me. Yeah, I agree that it's it's in between Stand Up and Aqualung. That's kind of why I mentioned it as a dark horse. I think that it lends more towards Aqualung than Stand Up. But that being said, the word dark also I think is kind of important because I mm -hmm. usually see this described as uh, one of the darkest or most mature or most serious Tull albums or however you want to put that. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually, I think Ian has said that himself in an interview, that he considered this to be sort of a dark album. And there's some parts of the music where I kind of see that, but I think even more so lyrically. You know, we usually talk about Ian Anderson about how he doesn't like to write about personal things. He usually, mm -hmm. uh, his lyrics are usually fictional. That being said, I think there's a lot of exceptions on this album. And this album, to me, a lot of the songs, lyrically, they feel very personal and about uh, from Ian Anderson's own life to me. That's kind of the feeling that I get from it. Some of them do, and some of them don't, because... Mm -hmm. As Ian said himself about some of these songs, they, they look like they're personal, but they actually aren't. Mm -hmm. And I know what you mean, but at the same time, this is, this is funny because to me, this album is very closely associated with a specific time of year and a, a specific kind of time in life. And it's a very positive thing. And interestingly, this is... It is the time of year as we are recording this, early May, late spring, when everything's sort of blooming and becoming green. So I don't associate it with summer, although the first track clearly hints in that direction. But no, this is mm -hmm. to me not a summer album, but an early spring album. And I, I had a wonder most wonderful time listening to it yesterday with open windows and sunny weather, etc. I think it was interesting that you mentioned uh, jamming as, a, as an integral part of this album because I, I actually kind of have the opposite idea when I think of Benefit because I was listening to it last night and something that struck me about it was that there's a lot of sort of studio construction on it that it wasn't really there in the same way on Stand Up and certainly not on This Was. And there's some songs even that they almost remind me of the Beatles. 
like sort of the later Beatles mm-hmm. period and how they were uh, really into studio construction and mm-hmm. uh, post production and things like that. Oh sure, I I totally see what you mean. I'm not saying that it feels like a live recording, mm-hmm. but what I'm saying is that the the sections where we, you will have several guitars playing at once, several parts, several melodic parts overlapping, they don't feel rigorously pre-composed. They don't feel with with the kind of classical music even attitude yeah. that Tal grew to have on on the later albums. They feel composed on the spot. Yeah, I see what you mean. And they have connect very loosely with it, with each other. Mm-hmm. And the transitions between the sections which are very very obviously studio constructed and kind of t- trademark Tal transitions between very different contrasting parts of songs but they're also very loose instead of very precise so they kind of feel massively trippy to mm-hmm. me there's a lot of people i think in the tall fan community who really love this album I, that's something that i often see online is that it's maybe a vocal mm-hmm. minority maybe is what i would call it where I, you know yeah, I, I don't prob- th- i don't think this is an album which is like universally considered one of the great tall albums but mm-hmm. i feel like more and more every year i see more of kind of a sliver of the fan community that is really vocal about how much they love this album i actually love this album very much mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was one of my first tall albums one of the albums i grew up with how do you feel about the remix by steven wilson to be honest, so this is something I'm going to have to be honest with the listeners about, is I'm not much of an audiophile myself, personally. When I listen to the Steve Wilson remixes, aside from the obvious cases where there's there's clearly something new there, or like, you know, they cut something or they, they change something around, for the most part, I don't notice a lot of difference beyond just the pure sonics of, you know, more modern EQ and fuller sound and that kind of thing. That's mostly what I get out of the remixes. And uh, mm-hmm. so in that sense, on benefit, I, there's not a lot to me that's immediately apparent that's different. But what about you? I prob- probably feel the same, but it's, it does feel clearer and it does feel like the detail is brought yeah. into attention much more forcefully than on the original mix. Interestingly, a friend of mine who's the drummer in my band, he wasn't too keen on the album before he thought of it. He called it a flat rhythm and blues record mm. <laughs> until he heard the remix which he called a new album by a new band wow and said that it's now it sounds like something that could have been recorded in the late 70s with bonham on drums <laughs> I, so, I, I can't say i, that I know I, at least yeah. one person who was very impressed with the remix yeah i can't say that it uh it was that night and day for me but it's it certainly <laughs> sounds better i think just on a sonic level my views on this album have kind of evolved over time. When I was a kid, sort of first getting into Tall, this wasn't really an album I cared about that much. I felt that a lot of it was sort of too sober sounding and a little too dry sounding. Maybe mm-hmm. sort of getting on to the, the serious thing I mentioned earlier. But as as I've gotten older, I've kind of learned to appreciate it more. And I think particularly the uniqueness of sort of the more serious and I guess maybe studio-based constructions of some of the songs, which I think we know we'll mm-hmm. talk about. I've, I've grown to appreciate it a lot more and sort of see it as more of like a unique part of the discography. So for the member lineup on this album, we had Ian Anderson on vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, Martin Barr on electric guitar, Glenn Cornick on bass, Clive Bunker on drums, and John Evans on keyboards for the first time. So John Evans is a person who was extremely integral and important to the history of Jethro Tull, not just during his time in the band, but also his time before, where he came from the John Evan band, uh, which took his namesake previously. 
I think that a lot of Toll fans actually don't even really uh, grasp how important I think John Evans was to this group. A lot of the music in the early 70s period uh, was actually, when we got into the progressive period of Thick as a Brick and a Passion Play, a lot of that music was actually written by John Evans, and he was a, had a really important part in the band. So it's uh, it's interesting to see him sort of coming in on this album for the first time, not even billed as an official uh, band member yet. At this point, he was just considered a special guest. Uh, so, but this is sort of the the beginning of the John Evans period of the group, who would take uh, take take the band all the way through to the end of the se- the seventies. Yeah, even though he isn't even on the cover. Yeah, yeah. That's part of the special guest thing. I noticed that for the first time um, when I was looking at it last night. Uh, I don't know how I hadn't noticed that before. Uh, what do you think about the cover art? I like it. I know the members of the band don't like it too much, mm-hmm. but it kind of has that playful meta feel. Feel, and if you don't really think about, if you don't think about it too much, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, I think it's sort of interesting degree to which I'm not sure if it's trying to play off on the stand-up pop-up thing still if it was supposed uh-huh. to be a reference to that or or not no idea i think the back cover is cool where it's if i remember right it's the same image from the back which is actually the same way that stand-up was now that i think about it mm-hmm. yeah with the paper cut out reversed mm-hmm. and seen from the back this was the last album to have the band on the cover for a long time uh, i think until a i think oh that's a thought yeah that's true I remember Glenn Cornick uh, pointed that out in an interview one time, sort of saying how he he felt personally that Benefit was sort of the end of the group as a band, and he sort of pointed to that uh, as an example of that. Kind of makes sense. Which, speaking of which, we should mention this was the last album to feature Glenn Cornick. You know, his departure from the band, I think it was never really a settled thing. He always kind of held a grudge about the way it was handled, that uh, yeah. apparently he... Ian sort of sent Terry Ellis, the manager, to fire him instead of Ian doing it himself. And he didn't have contact with Ian afterwards, so he always felt like it was a rotten way to, to get fired. Well, they were young at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Ian's perspective was that Glenn, he felt that Glenn enjoyed the rock and roll lifestyle too much right. on the tour, which drew them apart. Be- because of Glenn's departure after this one i mentioned on this was how for me the first three albums this was stand up and benefit to me they sort of constitute early tall and uh, i know that there's you know disagreements with that in terms of sound and i totally get that but uh, once glenn left for me sort of these first three albums represent a specific era so to me this is sort of the end of that first version of the band yeah even though the albums are wildly different to me i i completely see what you mean Mm -hmm. because from Aqualung on, there's a different philosophy. Yeah. And the first three albums can be viewed as different versions of the first philosophy. Right. So let's get on with our track-by-track track, uh, deep dive of the album. Track one, with you there to help me. So this, I think, is a good example of a lot of what this album is and what it represents, both in that the the subject matter feels quite serious, the music feels very dry, uh, sort of uh, afraid or foreboding, sort of, 
And it's also a good example of the different uh, post-production things they experimented with, uh, mainly with the backmast. I think it's backmast. The backmast flute going on through a lot of yeah. different parts of the track. I think th- th- there's backwards flute and forwards flute mm-hmm. often at the same time. Feels feels like that to me. I love the way it starts. Uh, it uh, yeah, starting with kind of the spiral. It's, it feels like a spiral, sort of the, the piano starting up, and uh, it. Mm-hmm. It kind of results in that chorus, which is really explosive and powerful, I think, and is sort of the best part of the song. Yeah, uh, I think that's the kind of the, probably the most flute effects Ian has ever had on the flute. Yeah, this song. yeah probably. Because it's, uh, it doesn't feel like it's just uh, backwards, there's also delays and things like that. Mm-hmm. Sonically, I really like the place where the piano comes in and changes the texture yeah. in the middle uh, and where, where the claps are starting. And there, there are another quite distinct elements that contributes to the sort of trippiness of that section. Yeah, the hand claps are interesting because I feel like you don't hear a lot of hand claps on Toll songs. Yeah, even though it's quite a popular choice in other genres of music. Yeah. As the first song on the album, it immediately throw, throws us into the deep end by having a lengthy jam at the end. Yeah. And this is one of the things I want to talk about that this jam isn't an architecturally structured musical piece. Uh, it's just instruments trading off phrases practically ad nauseum. It kind of drags on, but it's also a little hypnotic, so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like like it overstays it, its welcome. And it makes a statement about the album and how, how the album is going to sound. Yeah, I agree. I particularly love how right after the chorus, it, it sort of slips back down into that that main repeating piano part it's mm-hmm. kind of like it's a crescendo that goes up and down over and over throughout the the track and i like that lyrically i think this is kind of a back to the family type theme yeah i agree of completely. the lyrics and i kind of i think it has a purpose being here at the start of the record because it preludes one of the themes that is very clearly hot on Ian's mind on this album. I wouldn't go as far as call it a concept album by any stretch. Mm -hmm. I don't want to look at it this way, but I think the lyrical themes, they have a few threads in them that we can follow throughout the album and see see how they unroll. And much like a collection of poetry can have themes repeating throughout and not being a cohesive poetical work. I think this album would be similar to that. So I'm not saying it's a concept album, but I'm saying that the lyrical themes repeat and evolve throughout and we can trace that. Yeah, I think you're right in that it, it feels very tied to the same subject matter as Back to the Family about going, you know, going mm-hmm. back to, if not a family, at least some kind of family figure. And as we'll, as we'll sort of see through the rest of the track listing, that's a very common theme, I think, in a lot of other tracks in the album as well. Yeah, going back to, and I agree, it's kind of intentionally vague. The ones that I know, so right. it, it gives us that suggestive kind of vibe where we could understand this, this lyric the way we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels kind of to me like on this album, Ian coming completely into his own as a lyricist because I don't think there is a bad lyric on the album. Mm. They aren't necessarily all too complex or all too genius, but the the lyrics are pretty great and they are starting to get more nuanced than they used to be on the the first two albums. 
Yeah, I think it's the first time when he's sort of stepping out of the blues paradigm, which he was still sort of in on stand-up, where we mm -hmm. talked about how on stand-up there were a lot of songs where it felt like lyrically he was still sort of doing just what he thought he was supposed to do as a blues uh -huh. musician. Track two, Nothing to Say. With Nothing to Say, I, I think it, it, it's quite interesting how musically this track feels very, very static in the instrumental sections and how forward-moving it feels when the vocals come in. Mm -hmm. There's a very stark contrast between those two different elements and kind of a little ironic given the title. When Ian sings about having nothing to say, the song clearly moves forward a lot. And when he stops singing, the song kind of sort of grinds to a halt. This is, I feel, mostly because of the harmonic movement in the verse and the chorus. The verse is a five-bar loop that repeats three times with four bars of the chorus that kind of cap it off. And the chords in the verse are a sequence that, that conveys a constant forward motion. And the instrumental bridges just loop between two chords, and which is why they have a feeling of standing still. Yeah, I totally agree. This, I think the song is kind of stagnant until the verse starts. And it's kind of to the point where I, musically, I don't really care for this song that much, to be honest. Uh -huh. I, I like the verses a lot. That's my favorite part of the song by far. But outside of that, the, the song feels a little boring to me. I, I think the verses are, are really good in the sense of how, like you said, it, it propels the song forward. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the vocals on the verses are really good. I think Ian sounds like he really believes in what he's saying on this song. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's very expansive, the verses. And I, I totally agree with sort of your metaphor of they, they paddle the song along. But otherwise, it, it feels a little bit middling to me outside of that. Yeah, maybe, but it's also a contrast. Mm -hmm. If the entire song is moving very much forward all the time, it's going to have a very different feel, rather than punctuated by moments of standing still. Yeah. I do think that the, the outro is really strong, where that sort of guitar line comes in in the vocals, mm -hmm. the repeating the nothing to say, I think that's really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it kind of ca comes into harmony with the lyrics and the music because, they, it, again, it loops two chords and illustrates the fact that there is nothing to say. Mm -hmm. Lyrically, on this track, uh, there's another lyrical theme on this album that I feel is very central. It's knowledge. Mm. The idea of knowledge passed on from those long in the tooth to those wet behind the ears. There's a lot of this theme on this album and around this album. And it's interesting how you say that Ian feels that it feels like Ian is very much believing into what he's singing because what I see in the lyrics is sort of a criticism of people who view knowledge as a zero-sum game. You would stand to, gain, stand to gain and die to lose. People who try to keep their revelations secret. But at the same time, of course, it's quite nuanced and there's a, we're looking at the concept of walking your own path. Yeah. Very, it's very much in focus. And the lyrics raise more questions than they answer. Uh, is there a point to sharing advice? Is the persona in the lyric someone that Ian feels close to? Or is Ian closer to whomever the persona is addressing, the you? And if, if Ian does really feel close to the, the persona of the, of the knowledgeable one, 
is it the hubris of youth when he's quite he's still quite a young person at, at this time mm -hmm. but he feels himself to be someone more experienced already expected to pass on some knowledge to other people yeah i think it's it is quite sardonic in a way and i think a lot of the same themes on thick as a brick are similar mm -hmm. about sort of being being a person in a position to say something but at the same time having nothing to say or nothing useful to say and that kind of thing i mean the very first line of thick as mm -hmm. a brick is the same kind of thing right which we'll, yeah. we'll get to mm -hmm. yeah I agree that we could also look at it that that, that way, like that, that person who is expected to share their knowledge don't doesn't really feel like the knowledge is worth sharing. Mm -hmm. But some of the elements of the lyrics betray another view on this. You would you would stand to gain and die to lose. So the the persona feels like their knowledge is something that would deteriorate from being passed on, mm -hmm. and that they themselves would suffer for it. Which is interesting, and I, I feel it. I feel it that, that it's kind of a critical view on this. Yeah, and like either way, it's it's a long step away from the the lyrics on this was for sure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and uh, we will see how Ian keeps talking about the, the concepts of knowledge and the concepts of advice in subsequent songs. Mm -hmm. Track three, alive and well and living in. So uh, we should have mentioned before we started that we're doing the UK track listing for this uh, episode and I, the reason we decided on that was because we figured that that was a better representation of the band's intent since presumably they probably didn't have much to do with uh, the label switching up the track listing in the US. In the US, uh, I think Teacher is here, right? A track yeah. three? Yeah. No, no, in the US, Inside is here and Teacher is on side B. Yeah, Teacher is where Inside is on this one, that's right. Mm -hmm. This makes me kind of less familiar with uh, Alive and Well because I grew up with the with the US version. Mm. So it, it was it was interesting to to listen listen to it in depth, uh, like a song that I've listened to less in my life. I think I probably also grew up with the US version, although I, I really don't remember. But I I don't recall hearing this song until until later. Mm -hmm. I actually quite like this song. I think it's a, a bit underrated. You know, I never see anybody talking about this song. I really love the, the pre-verses where you have kind of the flute hanging on these sort of jazzy notes, which aren't mm -hmm. really typical of a lot of other tall songs, I feel like. Yeah, I, I like how the track has kind of a disorienting feel Yeah. when switching from section, from groove to groove, from mm -hmm. section to section. It's kind of kaleidoscopic in a way. Right. And neither part that it explores ever fully resolves which is trippy. Yeah, the piano playing as well, I think is fantastic. And it, it's a really kind of, it's like a jazzy, relaxing type of piano playing from John Evans, which he, he doesn't mm -hmm. really do much ever again in the same kind of style. It's quite interesting. I think uh, there is a reason why it's not talked about a lot. And uh, I think Ian, based on the liner notes uh, from the Stephen Wilson remix, Ian doesn't like this song. Hmm. And I quote, uh, crap song, annoying jazzy flute phrases, bin it. <laughs> wow, I've never read that before. I need to read that. Jeez, that's pretty harsh, I think. I think this one's yeah. not that bad, man. Because <laughs> I, I do like it, really. It's, it's a wonderful little track, and it's quite short yeah. for what it is. And it's, 
It is really interesting how it's constructed. It almost feels to me like they're trying to imitate a different band's style on this song or something. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, not a lot to talk about because kind of less familiar with the track. The lyrics also, I don't really think I have much to say about them because they're they're an observational vignette. They have no conclusion, no moral, which is... I'm not saying that they have to have it, but it's a brief view into a situation of a person, and then we're off. Yeah, I actually think it's a bit generic, the lyrics. Could be. They don't feel generic, they feel unfocused. Yeah, I agree. It it just kind of sounds like something which I... It would not be uncommon in sort of any other type of rock song, I feel like. Well, they kind of do have specific Ian Anderson terms of phrase, but yeah. Which phrases do you think are specific to him? I feel like the ends of the verses, which even lyrically don't fully resolve, giving herself a chance, there's no need to show her how it should be, no reason to complain and nothing to fear, they always will be. They they have an open-ended quality to them. And this is the kind of attention that betrays Ian Anderson as a good lyricist. Mm. So that's my thought about the lyrics. Track four, Sun. This track is the kind of the hard rocking one on side A of the record because it begins with a very, very strong rocking groove and quite soon gives us a very curious transition to the acoustic part through a fade out. Yeah, which yeah. is again, this is the kind of studio thing that they, they didn't really do that anymore because they, they were more attentive to how sections combined. And this is what, what I mean by saying that the later tall works feel more pre-composed. But this one, they just faded out the first one, the first section and came in on top of it. Yeah, I was going to mention that bridge because it's quite weird how they uh, they have that sort of fade out, completely disconnected bridge in there. It, mm-hmm. the, the bridge sounds like, it sounds a lot like the Beatles to me. Like it almost sounds like he's trying to sound like Paul McCartney on the White Album or something. Huh. I think uh, one of the musicians also referred to it be, being kind of a kind of a Beatles track. Mm-hmm. Martin Barr. It's, uh, he said that it was very untall-like with an almost beat-lesque mid-section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds so, very much like that to me, like it could come right off the White Album or something. Interesting how you picked up on that. But th- this transition is very much a proggy musical device, but the change in texture and in sonic space with the fade-out, I w- would call this again psychedelic. Mm-hmm. And of course the distinction between the two genres wasn't so clear-cut at the time anyway. Yeah. It was w- what I like about that period. And it's also interesting how this this song is a two-parter that doesn't where the sections don't repeat, so the, we don't come back to where we began. Yeah, I think it's it's another of those things where they were really being experimental with this album, I think. And sort of the degree to, I guess the degree to which they truly were jams, as you said, and the degree to which they thought them out ahead of time. I'm, I'm kind of curious about that, kind of going through all this. Yeah, I don't think we will 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 have an answer to that. Yeah. I will say that I'm not a big fan of this song. I think 
part of it is because lyrically it's really sardonic and kind of bitter sounding. And you know, this is very clearly like another parents issue song, I think, for Ian. Mm-hmm. If they say differently in the booklet, you can let me know, but that's certainly what it sounds like to me. Yeah, but still, this is another lyric themed around the concepts of advice and knowledge passed on down mm-hmm. generations and around family. So we, we're here, we're tying up with you there to help me with uh, nothing to say. Yeah. And uh, I agree, it does, uh, has a very obvious, the critical view of the experience by age. Mm-hmm. Because the sorts of things that people say doesn't grow on trees. It's platitudes spewed by people set in their ways without really thinking about what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And juxtaposed immediately with a kind of a false end description of a true experience of the world. I only feel what touches me. How you could also read this verse as a praise of the scientific empirical method. <laughs> yeah. So, choose, choose your interpretation. I think knowing the degree to which Ian was unhappy with his dad and how they fought a lot about the idea of doing music as a career and that kind of thing, it wouldn't surprise me at all to think, you know, this is just kind of a straight, you know, literal song. He doesn't really comment on, on this being a personal one just an exploration of a relationship song but it's not boy girl it's boy dad and the song does finish on a very snarky criticism of generational relationships and sort of inability to see people as equals Mm -hmm. so again he ian is doing that through a persona we don't have to think that anything he sings is his own point point of view the distinction must be drawn between author and persona in the lyrics. Yeah, yeah that's something that he says a lot. Yeah, but the, the, the lines, you're only turned 30, so son, you'd better apologize, is, yeah, it mm-hmm. is snarky. Even musically, aside from the bridge, there's, this isn't just real, it's just not really that interesting to me, the, the music on this song, even particularly like mm-hmm. the hard rocking parts, uh, it, it just doesn't really do it for me. I don't know, the bridge is kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. I have a fondness for it. Track five for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and Me. Thing has to die, and the apes curiosity, money wins, and the yellow soft mountains move. So this is quite a timely song, because as we're recording this, Michael Collins yeah. just uh, died a couple of days ago. I always liked how he put him in the title of this song. I always thought that was, it's kind of, you know, out of nowhere and quirky and interesting. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I mean, you know, we, we weren't around back in 1970 when that was, uh, you know, a huge, you know, history-defining story, so I'm sure it was on everybody's mind. Yeah, I think that this song is, uh, it goes from quiet to loud a couple times in practically a power ballad way. So it feels very different, well, it doesn't feel different, but put it next to, to all to rock and roll, and you can kind of see how the musical devices in these songs are applied in a similar way, even though these two songs are extremely different. Yeah, I've never thought about that before, but you're right. Yeah, it, it, you, you could listen to it like like to a power ballad, you know, wave a lighter around. I really love sort of almost like the Steve Reich-esque minimalism of, you know, uh-huh. sort of the, I don't know what you'd want to call it, like the dour part or the, the acoustic part. Mm-hmm. I think it really works well, how they sort of build upon it until it sort of keeps climaxing. One thing I was kind of curious about with this one, I don't really like the breakthrough part where that that passage resolves itself. I almost kind of wish that either the entire song was just like one long build up and there was a breakthrough at the very end maybe, but I don't really like uh-huh. how it goes 
it breaks through and then comes back and keeps going in that pattern. Well, yeah, this is what I call the kind of power ballad vibe, mm -hmm. where you have a very powerful chorus where everybody joins in. But I, I do like the layers of complexity between the piano and acoustic guitar on the on the quite introspective part. Yeah. And uh, I think the textures and patterns make me feel also kind of psychedelic. They combine in surprising and seemingly jammy or random ways rather than feeling it completely orchestral, com completely intentional with every note. And I like how on the chorus the instruments come together from being apart. It makes it the more powerful and it kind of highlights the idea of uh, the lyrical idea of the theme, themes of solitude and how the instruments drop out on the walking with you line, which also contributes to that. Yeah, I like that moment where, where everything else kind of mm -hmm. drops out aside from that lyric. And you, I think solitude you mentioned, that's a really good uh, word to describe the song. And I think it's part of why the Michael Collins reference is, a, is a, I think really works weirdly enough with this song, because I think that's that kind of feeling of being on your own up in a, in a space capsule in space is kind of what this song represents to me. Mm -hmm. It does also have the social criticism in it when in the part where the, where the TV viewers are portrayed mm -hmm. and it kind of ties together with the other more ang angrier lyrics on the album. Yeah. Because Ian found a place to be angry at someone even, even on this song. Yeah, and this is another one where I feel like vocally this feels personal to me. For, it does, for and it, it probably is, but look at it like that. This is an exploration of a personal feeling, of a feeling of being an outsider, mm. uh, which Ian thought about a lot, and uh, with Jeffrey Hammond, who also felt an outsider a lot of the time. Yeah. But instead of saying what he thinks about it, Ian employs a metaphor. He employs the story of Michael Collins being in orbit around the moon alone in space right. to convey that feeling rather than saying I feel an outsider mm -hmm. and I, remind so, me in, is is in Michael Collins that situation is that reference in the lyrics I don't think it is am I wrong oh it absolutely is okay it's quite metaphoric mm -hmm. in, in in some places but the mothership is just a blip from your trip made for two mm. I'm with your boys so please employ just a little extra care it's on my mind, I'm left behind when I should have been there walking with you. This is Michael Collins in the orbital module yeah, thinking I'm, about Neil and Buzz. I missed that completely. <laughs> I need to go back and read the lyrics again. <laughs> and th there's one metaphor in the song that I can't really pass. The yellow soft mountains move under him. Is, is this what Ian thinks uh, the moon dust looks like? Because it's not yellow. Mm, yeah, not made of cheese. <laughs> oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I love the ending with the with you, that part kind of ringing uh -huh. out. I, I wish that they faded out the song that way instead of resolving it. Uh, I think that would have been a stronger ending. Well, it does fade out, you know. I, is there a strong resolution, you feel, on this track? I think the guitar ends, doesn't it? Like they play a final note. Yeah, it does have... But it's, it's a very little chord. It's very... <laughs> yeah, I just I wish the the with it's you part rang out resolution. Uh -huh. through the very end. Like I wish they faded out all the way uh -huh. with that. I think it would have been kind of cool. Like it's like it's going on forever. Like this, mm -hmm. you know, a space capsule in space. Yeah, and since it's the the last song on on the side, they could even have 
what, what, what's a it called? Groove. Locked groove. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. I love creepy stuff like that on albums. It'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Track six, To Cry You a Song. This one used to be my favorite song on Benefit, maybe in my teens or 20s. This is a, mo a moment of rock and roll on this otherwise, well, I wouldn't say it's a chill album, but a more introspective one. Yeah, I'd say this is like the main rock banger of the mm -hmm. album. And I'd say like, maybe arguably, I think this is the one song that kind of lasted the longest from this album in Toll World. Uh -huh. Yeah, they deserve a, a tall tribute cover album called To Cry mm. Your Song. So yeah, it, do, it did have a lasting sort of impact as, a, as, as an idea. I, I really like the dual guitar improvisations in band in two channels. Yeah, and uh, they're, uh, the, it's, it's not just double track guitar, it's actually Ian and Martin mm -hmm. playing together, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, this is also what I call psychedelic music. These parts are clearly improvised mm. and they create a, a sense of disorientation and unexpected musical space. and they converge on the main theme harmonized in a also kind of in a little unexpected way which contributes to that feeling as well mm -hmm. what do you think about the vocal effect they talk in the liner notes a lot about the effects at the time that things like phasing were popular and you didn't have a lot of studio tools so that that was what you used mm -hmm. but I, I do like the double tracked and modulated flanged, chorused, phased, whatever that is, vocals. And the fact that it's just the verse that's, that has these effects, that also ma makes it more interesting, there's more contrast. Yeah, I think, as they are, I think the effect is maybe a little too strong, and so I'm, I'm glad they took it off on the chorus, because I think that, that would have been too much. <laughs> that's probably how they felt, yeah. I feel that the drums carry this track a lot without letting it get boring, because the, all the fills and the delivery they have a sense of urgency. Yeah, I was going to mention that. There's a great Clive Bunker drum part in the song, and uh, I, I especially like, it's almost kind of like a hip-hop beat, you know, maybe 10 <laughs> yeah. years before hip-hop, but I like, like you mentioned, all the very quick little fills, like just very fast at the end of the bars, mm -hmm. which, uh, like you said, they kind of carry the song along. Yeah, and interesting how, how you think about hip-hop, because there's a moment, the pre-verse breakdown, mm -hmm. I feel it's an exemplary groovy moment because the hits falling the hits are falling just slightly late of the beat yeah for that extra oomph which is not 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 the kind of groove you often hear on tower records but mm -hmm. it's it's very powerful yeah i actually i i generally like this song i think it uh it rocks really hard i think that it's too long though and for the length that it is it's too repetitive because it, it really just kind of goes back and forth for six minutes I know what you're talking about, yeah, and I'm ambivalent on that. One time when I'm listening to that, I think, yeah, th they could have got it shorter. The other time, I'm okay with that. So mm -hmm. <laughs> really depends on the mood, on whether, whether you're able to get into that repetitive kind of groove and just jam with it. Yeah, I would have cut it maybe a minute shorter if it was me. <laughs> Uh, I don't like the chorus that much, to be honest. I think the, the strong parts of this song are the verses to me, and specifically mm -hmm. the, that dynamic between the two guitars, because that really carries the whole song, I think. Mm -hmm. I do agree. Lyrically, it's quite... This one is quite straightforward. Yeah, it's a road song. Mm -hmm. It's a coming home from the tour, and 
the themes of coming home and themes of air travel will come up quite often in Ian's lyrics in the later years. Yeah. And I like, this is also a very Ian and Anderson way of using secondary details to tell the story. So he's not, again, he's not telling us that he arrived on a plane, but he mentions bringing cigarettes, looking through windows, things like that. Yeah. And Rattling I, of safety chain. Yeah. I think there's several other road songs that you kind of see later on, like, you know, down mm -hmm. the years for Tull, and this is kind of the very first one. I'm not sure. Yeah, thought I saw angels, but I could have been wrong. I think that's just thinking about being up in the sky, right? Yeah, I would imagine so. Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, maybe, I guess air travel was kind of a new thing for them then, maybe? I mean, if they were going out on tour for the first time. This album was written, I mean, mostly on tour right after tour, so maybe that's kind of what mm -hmm. a lot of it was inspired by. Yeah, a lot of it was written on tour. I think they mentioned a lot about Ian shutting himself in, in his hotel room with a guitar and just writing songs because he felt they needed another album quite soon. And that not a lot of these songs have been played live before they recorded them. Mm -hmm. So th th this was partly uh, a very studio kind of work. Yeah. Track seven, A Time for Everything. Once it seemed there would always be a time for everything. What do you think of this very slight hesitation in the drums in the beginning? I was going to mention the drums in the song because they, they almost sound very more Barlow-like. To me on this uh -huh. song which uh you know i mean clive clive and barry are both great drummers and uh they're quite technical in their own ways but they're they're very different kinds of drummers and so it's very interesting to hear clive sort of playing uh -huh. in like more of an orchestral way sort of on this album or on this song I yeah mean. Uh -huh. yeah but the, the, there's that kind of delayed moment in the groove i, th I think the, right before the lyrics mm -hmm. if, if, if i remember co correctly where the the time is very clearly stretched yeah. It's very clearly coming in slightly later than expected, and not in a groove way, in a slow, slowing down way. This song for me is kind of filler. It's it's it? one of those songs where I listened to this album last night, of course, and I still can sort of barely remember what the song sounds like. It's, it's probably the only uh -huh. song in the album I would have to say that about. Yeah, th this one has never stuck with me. It, it's kind of folky and it gets a little mysterious at parts, which is kind of cool, but mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not very strong for me. I have a very different Okay. Opinion. So it's one of your favorites on the album? A, a very, very different impression. I don't remember uh, whether I picked this one as, as, as one of my favorites, because it was very hard for me to pick favorites on this one. But there are places where melodies come together and then fall apart into a, into a haze, mm -hmm. and where we're propelled forward, and then we find ourselves hanging in a, in a void with little phrases and melodies whizzing by making our heads spin it's this is prime psychedelia mm. for me and then and then everything just stops just leaving leaving me kind of mouth agape in a what was that yeah there's kind of like a cutoff and, ending right yeah and to me it it, it feel, feels great because it kind of contributes to that disorienting feeling of of how how how, how the song sounds mm. i like it one disorienting thing about it that's kind of funny is there's a, I think it must be a keyboard or a synth or something that's played towards the beginning that sounds like a dog whistle or something. It's it's like a really high pitch. Huh. I don't don't think I noticed that. Eh? It's just oh, played one time, again. they hold it for a couple uh -huh. seconds and it, it's one of those, I don't know what you'd call those, like the tones that your dogs can hear or whatever, like that uh -huh. kind of thing. Interesting. Ultrasound. <laughs> 
Yeah. I will say I like that they put a question mark on the title. I think that's kind of cute. Uh huh. Well, yeah, because the lyrics do question things. Mm -hmm. And it's not too complex lyrically, but this is a reminiscing on the point of view of an older person. Mm. And it does contribute to the old versus young theme of the of a lot of the lyrics on the album and the meaning of experience and how we, how we acquire it yeah yeah i think so continuing kind of the generational theme mm -hmm. and i think this is this is what ian said as well when talking about the track when where he specifically pointed out that 50 years old at the time was sort of a watershed age right it felt like that and not just to him as a young person but apparently to to a lot of people Track 8, Inside. I'm sitting in the corner, feeling glad. Got no money coming in, but I can be sad. That was the best cup of coffee I ever had. And I won't worry about a thing, because we've got it made. Here on the inside, outside so far. This is a great song, I think. It's. I think it's a bit underrated. Um, I don't think mm -hmm. it's sort of a popular Toll song by any means. But uh, everything. I love everything about this song. I think the lyrics are great. I think it's. It's a really like homebody type song. Uh, there's mm -hmm. really interesting sort of quirky stuff being played on both drums and bass, and uh, it's really joyful. And I really like that about it. It's. It's really kind of a, a nostalgic feeling song. Yeah. This is. This is a kind of a hippie song. Yeah. Yeah. You might say so. It kind of probably couples thematically with, with you there to help me. Or maybe a counterpart for To Cry You A Song. What Ian is, what, not Ian, what the persona in the song is imagining, uh, they are coming back to the kind of life imagined, especially from, from a touring musician's perspective. Yeah. Jeffrey gets uh, shouted out again. Uh -huh. Yeah, obviously. They're, they're summoning him. Musically, there's a very interesting swing in the drums versus the rest of the instruments. I yeah. can't really pinpoint at the moment what's going on there. They kind of, it feels like the drums are playing a slightly different groove than everyone else, but it works. Yeah, totally. And the way the drums are double tracked with uh, toms on one side and cymbals on the other, clearly played in, in, in two separate recordings. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I mean about kind of, this is one of the kind of thing that you get from tall music, I think. It's just these super quirky things that shouldn't work in theory, but somehow they do. Uh -huh. And yeah. that's a lot of what tall drummers like Clive and Barry are so great at making parts like that. Yeah, I agree. The, the song has a very complex groove. For mm -hmm. what it is. And I think that musically Jethro Tull on benefits play a lot with the feeling of movement. And in this song, there's just one fast part which feels like a chorus, but it doesn't repeat, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, there's a place where they start playing with our expectation, making us imagine that uh, I'm sitting in the cor corner feeling glad we'll come back again, but it doesn't. Instead, they do a kind of a non-chorus with some mumbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, the second one of these non-choruses is where the track fades out. Yeah. I love that outro, the way they do that. Yeah, so yeah, it's really, again, it's, it doesn't feel avant-garde, but that's a very odd decision musically, but it works in the context of, context of a song. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it the way you just did, that it doesn't feel abstract or avant-garde, but something about it is just very different and not, not common. Mm -hmm. I like the fuzzed out guitar. It kind of sounds a little like brass 
if 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 if, if we heard brass from a distance. It's a very cool effect. Mm. Is there a mandolin in the back, or is that a guitar? Uh, I think that's the balalaika. Oh, okay. That's the an another entrance of the electric balalaika. Mm. From the Jeffrey that's, goes to Leicester uh, Square, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think g great song overall. Um, I think uh, yeah, I, I'd almost put it in one of my all-time favorite tall songs. I think I think it's really a, 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 an overlooked song. Really? Yeah, I, I like it. I'm not massively fond of it, but again, there's there's no song on this album that I that I don't like. Mm -hmm. Track nine, play in time. Backwards guitars, yeah, one of my favorite sounds. And in one place, I feel is it is it a backwards piano as well? I didn't didn't really check that by sticking it the song into a door and reversing it to to, to really pinpoint yeah, that what right. kind of backwards instruments we're hearing. But I don't know. I I just love how how these things sound. And the, the organ makes an entrance here, yeah, in a very pronounced manner. This track is super bluesy, and it, it almost kind of mm -hmm. feels like it, it almost kind of comes out of nowhere on the album, how it's it's a lot more bluesy than anything else on the album to me. Yeah, probably, but again, this is not a 12-bar blues at the same time. Right. But still, yeah, I, the feeling of bluesiness, I think it's kind of Hendrix-level stuff mm -hmm. in some places. Double-channeled backwards guitars. I mean, how more psychedelic can you get? Like, if you remember uh, Jimi Hendrix's track EXP that begins uh, the album Axis Bold is Love, where it's just effects and craziness on the guitar going left to right, mm -hmm. forwards and backwards. Uh, this is sort of what it, what it feels like today. I, I like the backmasking, but I almost wonder if it's a little gimmicky the way that it's used, and uh, particularly because the, the name of the song, Play in Time, which I think is a very obvious dig at the fact that they're backmasking portions of it, um, it, it feels a little bit, uh, yeah. it feels kind of gimmicky to me, to be honest. It doesn't really. I think uh, what the uh, a lot of the musicians thought were the, that um, the, the lyrics and the name were a dig at them being unable to play in time. Mm. and but. I don't know, I, I do enjoy the backwards stuff and I like the transitions between the jammy parts and the tutti parts where everyone comes together. These are kind of trademark by this point. Yeah. But I like how the tutti parts gets massively deconstructed at the end with all the backwards yeah. stuff going on. And the sped up and, and everything. Mm -hmm. It also has a, clearly a self-referential uh, part in the lyric where they, the lines about blues Mm -hmm. was my favorite color uh, because that clearly referenced the, the shift in style right till I looked around and found another song that I felt like singing and I think uh, yeah, with regards to lyrics Ian Anderson quite feels self-conscious about the line talking to people in my way yeah yeah I kind of I like that though like uh, I like uh -huh. the the sections before the back masking, I think, are very strong, especially when it's just instrumental and it's kind of bouncing off the walls. I, I like those a lot. Uh -huh. I, I like the entire one. I don't. <laughs> I don't think the the back masked parts are weak. Yeah, I, I like how they sound. 
Um, like, I, I don't have an issue with the fact that they backmasked. I just think, mm-hmm. I don't know, something about it just kind of feels a little gimmicky to me. But I, I like how it sounds. I think it, it's very powerful the way that they use it, which is cool. And also, we don't get that anywhere else in the tall discography. Yeah. So f- for what it is, I think it's, we, we should treasure that. We mm-hmm. should treasure these moments where they experimented in that way yeah. because they never did again. Track 10, Saucity, You're a Woman. It feels almost church-like at the start. Yeah, I agree. It's a fantastically contrasting playing time. And I like the very complex band acoustic guitar moments. I think it's Martin and Ian again on two guitars. And this makes me feel that the album is extremely cohesive in its musical elements and the musical devices that it employs. And at, at the same time, very diverse in the way they are explored. Like we have panned electric guitars played by Ian and Martin on the other tracks and here we have panned acoustic guitars which feel c- completely different but but um, this is the same thing they did they stood together in the studio and played at the same time different parts this track is it's really different from the rest of the album mm-hmm. in a way that's it's almost kind of shocking it, it's it's not something that you're really expecting I think if you're listening to the track listing for the first time and uh, it sounds like it's in a crazy time signature. I don't know what that would be. Ooh, I didn't, I didn't try to count that. I should. <laughs> but it has a very strong, uh, like, contemporary folk sound. I think, which isn't really mm-hmm. on the rest of the album. Yeah, and the tambourine and sleigh bells texture is feels like to me like the, again, like the psychedelic moment in this track because the texture is so different to the solemn organ beginning. Yeah. And the coda of this of this song feels like a palate cleanser for, for the entire album. Sort of musically washes away all the craziness that we experience throughout throughout the record. Yeah, it is kind of a palate cleanser, I think, compared to much of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I like the final chord, like sort of ringing out to the end of the album. Yeah, 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 that, that's, that is the most palate cleansing moment. Mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful chord, very beautifully recorded, full sound. But I, I think this song's fine for what it is, but it's it's not really one that I go back to that often. And it's not really one that I think of when I think of Benefit, the album. It, to me, it mm-hmm. it's feels more like kind of a one-off song almost. It, it, it relates, it's related to like Witch's Promise to me a lot. It feels like a same, similar kind of song. Maybe, uh, but interestingly, it this was, I think, one of the songs, one of the songs that, the, that were played live mm. before they recorded Benefit. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. And so, unlike some of the other songs, this one was was one of the songs from which the album was born. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's kind of interesting how it how it caps everything off in a very different manner, but still feels like we could probably imagine that uh, the album was in a way composed to a point to be to be finished off with this song. With that in mind, what do you think? Yeah, it could be. Um, I, I just can't get over how different it is because it just nothing else on the album sounds in the same wheelhouse. It, it it's almost like it was, it almost sounds like a different band to me in a way. It, it's <laughs> so different for the time period. It is, and I, I I think that's one of the things that makes this this song quite powerful in the context. Because if you stuck it onto I don't know War Child, it would have felt sort of more in place, but also it would have stand stood out as. Yeah, I agree. 
the, the placement of the song is very important to, to, to the perception. I think in the lyrics there's a little more social criticism for this album. Harkens back to for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and me. This time maybe in less broad strokes, but still Ian is chastising parts of society that he feels deserves that. Yeah, society is supposed to mean society, I think, right? Yeah, it, it, it's a made-up word mm-hmm. that sounds like a prissy girl's name, yeah. to quote. To quote Ian. And he's got the, the line, smiling face worn, instead of limp faces on, on, on the TV viewers in for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and me. So it's kind of a less grotesque imagery than there, but still um, things he's not happy about with society in general and specifically with, with people like the ones portrayed in this song. I appreciate how they put a semicolon in the title of the song. You don't see that very often. <laughs> yeah, this album is ripe with punctuation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Benefit. So, Eugene, what's your favorites? What's your bottom? Oh, dear. <laughs> As I said, there's not a song on the album that I don't love, so picking favorites and especially bottom tracks is kind of excruciating. So let's say my top three tracks are With You There To Help Me, because I really love how it begins the album and the the mood that it sets. It's for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and Me, uh, which makes it a full set for me on the first three albums where I pick the Jeffrey songs as my most favorite ones. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) And I will say play in time because I love how rowdy it is with all the backwards stuff and uh, the kind of rock and roll feel. Mm-hmm. I do enjoy that track a lot. My bottom tracks, I don't know, probably this is th- this might be where you and I will not agree. I think probably inside because oh, it's quite simple. <laughs> Again, I love every song on this album, so probably just I maybe love inside not as intensely yeah. <laughs> as as the rest of them. You always uh, go after the cute songs. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe nothing to say. Huh, okay. Because I agree that the intentional kind of move stop thing has a nauseating stuck in a traffic jam kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably exactly what the track wants to achieve, but let's it makes me easier makes it easier for me to put it in, in, into the bottom pile mm-hmm. and I won't pick a third one. So I have a top two with sort of a honorable mention, I guess. Mm-hmm. My top two are with you there to help me and inside. I think those are the two that sort of stick with me the most from this song. For number three, I have either nothing to say or for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and me. I think mm-hmm. those two songs, there's things about them I really like, but there's they just don't grab me as a whole. There's other parts of it I don't like equally as much, so uh, it's hard for me to kind of recommend all of those. Mm-hmm. I think To Cry You a Song is a good song too, but it's, it's, it's again not one that I go back to that often, and I also just think it's too long. Mm-hmm. For my bottom three, I also have uh, just two, with may- maybe a third one if I had to pick one. I would say A Time for Everything, because it feels filler to me, and I don't really feel uh-huh. like it goes anywhere. I'd pick Sun, because I think that it's just nothing really special musically and the lyrics just kind of turn me off because they're they're mm-hmm. kind of mean i feel like it <laughs> kind of sounds like a weird thing to say especially from someone who's a huge hip-hop fan but i don't know something about it is just it's very like sardonic and kind of like a youthful way that just kind of turns me off somehow uh-huh. 
I see. And lastly, if it, I don't really want to pick a third one, but if I had to, I'd maybe say Saucity just because it, it doesn't really stick with me that much. Really? Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. As an honorable mention at the at the end, should we talk, say a few words about Teacher? Because apart from being a single, it was included on the US version and we did listen to it in the context of the album. Yeah, I think like you, I still kind of think of Teacher as an album track, even though I guess, you know, mm-hmm. technically it's not if you go by, you know, the UK uh, history of the band. I think it's interesting how they were two mixes. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, there was the American mix, which is the the popular one, to my understanding, and then uh, the UK mix, which added on kind of a, a guitar line over the main <clears throat> the main section of the song, which actually changes it quite considerably, I'd say. Uh-huh. I feel like Teacher is, in a way, part of the album because uh, it really ties uh, ties in with it lyrically. Yeah, I agree. It contributes to the to the theme of teaching, uh, of advice, of passing on knowledge. Even though the knowledge specifically passed in this song is not not anything too deep, jump up, look around, find yourself some fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it it does contribute to to the lyrical theme of authority and experience and and things like that teacher is also it's similar for me to a lot of songs in this album and i'm kind of now just realizing that this is a pattern for me and that there's lots of songs in the benefit period where i don't really like the chorus that much but i like the verses Uh and that's how i feel about teacher the chorus doesn't do a lot for me uh but i think the verses are pretty strong particularly i like the uk mix more than the american one because i think the the guitar part is really good um Uh but it also the uk mix changes the song quite a lot because in the american mix the emphasis is on that uh bass slide that glenn is playing which is i guess kind of a Uh you know one of the famous glenn cornick parts now but the guitar kind of uh, it shifts attention away from that in the UK mix, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I like that outlook. I agree that the the chorus is nothing really spectacular on this one, and this song musically to me feels a little out of place on Benefit because it's a little simpler. Mm-hmm. But lyrically, it it does have a contribution. So that that's my that's my take on that. I know that Ian hates this song. I think he said that <laughs> many times. The first time that I saw Atoll, just as an aside, I saw the the final tour with martin that was the first time i saw them the aqualung thing and when they played uh i can't remember if it was aqualung or locomotive breath i guess it must have been locomotive breath but they martin kind of had a part where he stepped forward and they they went into the chorus from teacher without ian singing i just kind of like in the middle of locomotive breath and then went back in and that was that was kind of interesting huh interesting yeah i don't think i I heard anything like that on a, on a live recording, but maybe I wasn't paying attention. But it's interesting to me how this is one of the most popular Toll songs ever, Teacher. And uh, at least I don't know how it is in Europe, but for me, kind of growing up, if you ever listen to classic rock like FM radio, uh-huh. you know, there's a couple of Toll songs that would sort of be frequently heard on those kinds of stations in America, and Teacher was one of them. There isn't really a thing as a classic rock FM radio in Ukraine, mm. so I would never hear teacher or any other tall track on on the radio here but that's interesting yeah i know i know that um it was a very popular single Mm -hmm. so yeah it stuck with people i think the ones that you would i haven't listened to radio in america for a long time so who knows this is still the case but at least as of uh i don't know seven or eight years ago um you would frequently hear aqualung and locomotive breath Mm -hmm. and teacher and then uh, occasionally you would hear him 43 and bungle in the jungle and how about living in the past 
Yeah, I think maybe living in the past also, but uh, uh-huh. I think that was kind of the extent of whatever you would hear of Toll on the radio in America, at least, you know, when I was in high school or so. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah. So when, when you look right. at Benefit as a whole, how do you sort of see this contributing to the Toll discography and where would you sort of place it in terms of quality for you? Well, like I said at the beginning, it feels like a step sideways. Yeah. It feels like an exploration of a, of a territory that they didn't explore before and didn't come back to afterwards. The, the sort of more improvisational, jammy, and also um, off-the-wall studio experimentation. Mm-hmm. And to me, yeah, it is one of my favorite Tall albums because it's not super musically complex if we compare it to, to later works. But it has a special place in my heart, and it always improves my mood when I listen mm. to it. It's it's a feel-good album for me. So it's a top-tier one for you? Probably, yes. I would say so. Or maybe, like, second-tier, but very close. Mm-hmm. This one, for me, it I like this album, generally, but it's never really been something super special for me. I think that my opinion of it has kind of improved over time. I like it more now than I did in the past. But I prefer Stand Up over this one when it comes to like early Tall on the first couple albums. But I like this one. I think it's interesting how it feels like over time more and more people really love this one. And so it's kind of interesting to see the evolution of how it's considered in like the fan community and that kind of thing. Thanks everybody as always for joining us in our deep dive of Benefit today. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you think. What's your favorite tracks off Benefit? What's your least favorite? Do you like this album? Do you think it's not that special? You can let us know in the comments on the platform you're listening to, or you can email us at vernacularverbose at gmail.com. Look forward to the next episode. This will be a big one, where we're going through the, the big album, Aqualung. And look forward to a music theory exploration of how locomotive breath uh, achieves the feeling of being completely unrelenting. Yep, I'm trembling with excitement for that one. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs>